And we're at our own pace. So that's the wonderful thing is, is that we're not saying we have to be finished with something. And so it allows for engagement, um, some feedback, questions, uh, and discussions, and, and certainly sharing um, as we, as I tell the spirit leads uh, through this study. And with that is that when we broke uh, right before summer, we finished up just uh, first part, first seven verses or actually the first, uh, uh, actually 11 verses of chapter 4, and we broke for the summer because it was a clean break point. But of course, as the longer you just spend time in, away from the Sunday School Fellowship, it's just that you keep thinking about different things. And um, I told Mark this, that I'm not going to just jump right into to verse 12 right away because there, I just want to share some things from a broader perspective that God has really just laid on my heart. And... It was a it was a, a a punch in the stomach experience that I, I want to share with you, and so uh, I thought in the form of some of these opening questions for is that I thought we would just take a couple minutes and just talk about some of these, but I wanted to give you this intro first of all to kind of give you the perspective of what some of the things I've been experiencing and maybe you can relate to them as well. Um, as you know, we we have little uh, little grandson Alec. And he's two and a half, and so he is at that age, as you know, that two and a half year olds do not know how to walk. They only know how to run. <laughs> they just run everywhere. And so he is at that, at that stage. So, of course, um, you know, you, you don't, since he's running everywhere, there was a time earlier that, uh, of course, he's always running to Papa. And sometimes Papa doesn't see him coming. You know what I'm talking about. So there was a time when he's coming full speed at Papa, and Papa's back was to him. And then, of course, Papa turns, and Papa gets, boom, with his hands going forward right in the stomach. <gasps> like this. And I'm like, you know, I'm like out of breath, but of course I'm not going to show a two-and-a-half-year-old that I'm hurt or, but I was totally caught off guard. Now, I hope that you have not been punched in the stomach lately, but if ever in your lifetime that you've ever had that experience, how would you describe it? Is it a pleasant experience? No, it is not. And part of that fact is that no one wants to get punched, so when you think about getting punched in the stomach, it's more or less is that you would say is that, you know, like, okay, Betty, go ahead and punch me in the stomach. Because you know what I'm doing right now, right? You can't... Tensing up. I'm yeah. tensing up my stomach because I am ready for this shot. Well, there is a spiritual lesson there for me because I'm reminded that we have to be spiritually ready at all times. And what I'm going to submit is that I wasn't ready. And that was a circumstance, that came. It wasn't a bad thing. It was a circumstance that I wasn't ready for, frankly. And it caught me off guard, and I was alarmed off. And then I quickly responded to that. I share that because I wanted you to, un- to talk a little bit about it, is that one of the things that's been challenging me is in that spiritual lesson, as I think about this book of First Peter, is that as we've been studying it for so long, it is a book of about suffering. The theme of this book is suffering. 
And what the theme is about, and not only is it suffering, but it is more importantly, is that how do we respond to that? And are we ready for the punch in the stomach? Are we ready for the punch of suffering that comes into your life? Okay? That is really sort of the question. And so as I think about the, this book that Peter wrote in, in suffering, I don't know if you, just for the sake, is that in, in Peter's letter, does he address every form of suffering? And the answer is no, he hasn't. And so I'm going to go ahead and move ahead and say, well, what would be some of those types of suffering that we would find in Scripture? To kind of just say, describe some of them. What might be some of them? I have some of them up here, but let's just kind of talk about them. The first one is the suffering because we are part of the fall of a fall creation. If you go to uh, Romans 8, you don't have to turn there, and what it talks about is literally creation itself groaning, isn't it? Because of sin. And it also speaks of then we, are, that our, ourselves are groaning because of sin. And so simply, just the suffering because we're just part of a fall, fall creation itself. There are the, the sufferings that focus primarily on the temporal consequences of personal sin, both believers and unbelievers. You know, some of the passages here in Proverbs, Matthew 18, that talks a little bit about discipline within the church itself and consequences for behaviors, even for believers themselves. Acts 5 is another example. And then, of course, there is the suffering of the eternal suffering, which is that of those who reject Christ in hell. Luke 16 talks a little bit about that. And I'm going to come back to that verse in Jesus' teaching there. And then there's this involuntary, and I'll call voluntary type of suffering. The involuntary quote is this suffering at the hand of our loving God that really brings us into this aspect of testing us to see, do you trust me? (laughs) Peter, do you trust me? I'm reminded of that call where he says, Peter, just step out of the boat. You know, and it was some hesitation in that. Do you trust me? Be obedient as his sons. And some of the passages there you can recognize and look up as far as that give you examples of those involuntary types of sufferings at the loving hand of God. In Job, in Hebrews 12, it's just a great chapter that just talks literally about this, what? This chastening of the Lord and the discipline that we don't necessarily like, but yet at the same time we see is that he says, I will never forsake you. Boy, what great confidence in that. And then, of course, this voluntary suffering where we as believers are making a choice to identify with Christ. And in that is this living out of our godly lives. In John 15, 13, it specifically tells us that the world will hate you. It goes on further, even in talking about that hate, is because Satan is this ruler of this world that is opposed to that. And so therefore that's going to be that result of it. And so see, there's just some of these, these different categories as you think about suffering, but yet within our, this letter itself is that the focus has been, hasn't it been writing here, on these, this voluntary and this involuntary aspects of suffering that we've seen. Now let's go to this punch in the stomach question that I threw out there to you, because I wasn't ready for that. And I'm going to ask you a question. As I talked about that second question, which was, I'm going to go back to this, it said that believers, do you grasp the future dimensions of the blessings that are associated with our sacrificial work for Christ, or His, in His work that came about? 
And how does it manifest itself today? And I want to give you, I want to poke at something to see where you're at spiritually. Because as, as Mark and I were talking, is, is that the world is changing every day around us. But what I would submit is that if you do not know, quote, know Christ deeply, you will not get it and understand it. Okay, so let me go back to this. This true test of our spirituality occurs when we come upon suffering. Is that I want to contrast for us is that we're going to com- contrast to say, is I ask you a question, is that are you spiritually, where you sit now, are you spiritually weak or are you spiritually strong? You don't have to answer that, but just to yourself ask that question. And I'm going to rephrase the word and say, so maybe I'm going to rephrase it from weak to lazy. Are you spiritually lazy? And I'm going to just put myself out in front of this group here that what my conclusion was is that I am extremely spiritually lazy. And as a result of that, it has had this significant erosion in perspectives of Jesus Christ. And let me go further on this. In the passage that um, we're going to be looking at in 1 Peter, it's, we're going to be picking up in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. And at the, the last verse in there, and it'll be a couple of weeks before we get there, it says in there that therefore those who suffer according to the will of God, in verse 19, commit their souls to Him in doing good. Okay? So throughout this letter of 1 Peter, we've heard this doing good for the third time. We had in chapter 2, verse 15, and again in chapter 3, verse 17, this aspect of doing good itself. And so the contrast would be is that in your mind, let me ask you this question, is there a difference between simply active work and spiritual activity? Active work, in other words, just doing good, if that's what, so I'm trying to understand what that looks like in this call of doing good. What is the difference in your mind between, in itself, simply active work and spiritual activity? Morning, Dietmar. Just jump in. No, no raising hands. Active work is when you're just doing something for the benefit of somebody, not for the glory of God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mark? Yeah. And I say spiritually, you have to be or all just good work. Mm-hmm. Mark? Like in the context of 19, right, is in your suffering as those who outcome or Absolutely. And, and what I'm trying to get at in that type of question itself is that we can, there's activity itself. But activity could be, let's just rephrase it, let's say circumstances, it's the very things. Do you see Christ? Do you see every circumstance as the means of obtaining a greater knowledge of Jesus Christ? That's really the, the broader question. That's a deep question. Do you see Christ in everything? And I'm, what I'm going to submit in this is specifically is that what has been the test for me? And I think that this is really the test that we're going to see in the context of this in First Peter because we already know that these, these believers that he is writing to are under persecution. They're suffering. And so he's kind of continuing to you know, exhort them. But 
it is the very circumstances, it is how we respond to suffering answers your question about, or my question, is that are you spiritually lazy or spiritually strong? Because it's sort of like, well, I'm just going to do things. Well, then I'm just going to pursue this. Here's an example. Is that if, in, in, when I say circumstance and suffering, you need to formulate in your mind a list of what those things are in your own personal life right now that might be affecting you as a family or whatever it might be. It's a circumstance. And what I'm getting at it is the very subtle things, the small or even the mundane things of the, that poke specifically at where you're at spiritually. It will reveal it. Because Christ is in those circumstances and it's going to come down to this knowledge of Christ itself. In other words, in Philippians 3.10, the aim of spiritually strong believers is that I may know Him. Our culture, and then our culture is we're almost ingrained that it's about let me figure out myself how to do this. It is a focus or an aim towards self-realization contrasted with a emphasis as believers should be on a Christ realization. Because what happens is is that you kind of look at the circumstance, the suffering that you're going through or whatever you might see and you say, well, why is this happening? This circumstance is challenging. Um, uh, I feel tough about it. And so then, here, here I give you my example, the spiritual lazy part of me, is that what do I then want? Is that I would pursue a peace. Boy, just, just let me go and... Dietmar knows my chair. Let me just go to my chair in my house and let me just pray. Let me just go there and find the Word and have the peace of God and totally stay off the road, per se, because that's the easy way of the culture. In other words, the culture is not saying get it in it and make it keep going at it. Because what I'm saying is, is that I don't recognize the circumstance and I don't have a proper response to that circumstance. Pardon. And build on that. I mean, that's not according to the will of God. So the framework of their even thinking about the circumstances, they actually said this is because of God's will. So the framework from the very get-go is that God's in this. God's what is God doing in this circumstance? Yeah. That is the question. Yeah. And that's a tough one. Because in where we sit right now, and where we live in this culture, it, it, it takes an opposite direction. It's pushing to an opposite direction. You are a victim. It's unfortunate that this is happening. That's not the case. God is doing this for His purposes to grow us. It's how we choose to respond to this. One of the, one of the really, really uh, interesting passages that I've come across that has really challenged me is, is that as they think about, is that Jesus is telling His disciples that, look, you're going to be persecuted. It's going to be tough out there. And so then what does He tell them to do? He doesn't tell them to go and, you know, hey, just... Get, stay away from it. He is saying in Matthew 28, the end, he says what? Go. Go and tell my brethren. In other words, go and get persecuted. Go and get into the fight. Go and create the con- confrontation. Run to the battle. It's right. But to this itself, this knowing him. Take, if you could for just a, 
a second is go with me to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. Remember this simple activity or, or the being active versus spiritual active? John 15, excuse me, John 13, pardon me. John 13 verses 3 to 5. Someone want to read that? Knowing that the Father had upper and laid aside his garments and towel burdened himself out. Then he poured water into the basin and washed the disciples' feet. What I want you to say is that we, we're familiar with the washing of the feet passage, aren't we? But have you ever taken the time to look at what precedes immediately that action that he took? What, what is the emphasis in that? Everything in their world. Do you see the relationship? in the, the preceding verse. Do you see the relationship in there where it says that he, he knew that the, he says, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. Knowing. This is this intimacy says that I know him. It, further it says, and that he had come from God and was going to God. He knows that. Then he acts. So, what I'm, this what helps us to get a right frame of mind as we look at the very circumstances, the difference in this is that is spiritual activity is what Christ is exemplifying there, preceded by relationship and knowledge, is that they know Him. This spiritually strong believer that I may know Him, Paul, I mean, he emphasized this throughout, is that, that he would know Christ. And then like we described in here, then the outflow of that is on the basis of relationship. It's all on the basis of perspective. Do you see that? It is not just like, oh, I have to go and wash these feet. You know, it's like it's the thing to do. We gotta sign up for things at the church. We gotta just do these things. There they are. That's activity. Spiritual activity is what we see in from the standpoint of this relationship that is first. And so as I, as I looked at this section of passage that Peter is, um, concludes with this doing good, this spiritual activity is what it, what it reflects. This doing good is spiritual activity. Because he's seen it up to this point. He's talked about conduct. He's talked about how they need to behave in, in a hostile environment. How do they need to respond to persecution? Name-calling the evil that's going to be present in their life, how they respond in itself, this is needs to be preceded with relationship. It is knowing Him. And so I submit this because that's where I was at. I found myself spiritually lazy. Is that I saw the circumstances in my life and I don't... It's about my own self in those circumstances. It's about self-realization as opposed to what God wants us is to... You're, it's all about Jesus' realization. Knowing that Christ is in these circumstances in your life for what purpose? God causes all things to what? Work together for good to those whom He has called. Those all in this is the circumstances. And what I want you to think about is, is that what is that suffering? Because I think that that is, contextually, it's very clear in the passages that what Peter is drawing 
to the what is that focus. It is literally the, the, the physical, the mental, the emotional, and all the, the, the trials that they're amid at a time when, frankly, government-wise, Nero is on a terror at this point. We're not ex- we don't know that where we sit. And so we're kind of sitting at this spiritually comfortable, lazy perspective many times in that we don't see Christ in even the small mundane aspects of circumstances in our lives. To pause, does that make sense? I think in reality the active work is all self, whereas either us or the disciples were sent out, were asked to suffer, that means we get thrown into the pit where we have to realize that it takes more than self to get out of that pit. Recognize that there's a rope hanging down. He has given us a way out. Once we get out of that pit, we see the next pit, we're going to see the rope quicker. The pit may not be as big, but we're going to see the rope quicker. We're going to recognize that there is more than self. And the more we get into those pits, the more we recognize that there is a way out of those pits. I appreciate that. And I like the strength of what you said in there because sometimes that sounds pretty strong. And I'm, what I'm getting at is that while sometimes I, found, I find myself is I need to go and... I'm not saying that quiet times are not good, okay? That's, don't listen carefully to what I'm saying. I'm not saying that we don't pray and we don't have quiet times. Those are all critical. But what are you seeking to go in, in that? In other words, why are you doing it? Is it for the purpose to know Him more? Or is it to, for the purpose of saying, oh boy, I just, I just got to find the peace of God in this. That's not what it's, we're called to do. In fact, we're called for the opposite. We're called to get into the fight. And I think that when you understand, Peter gets it. Because when he, he's continuing to exhort them, and, and it's interesting is, is that at the end of this, is that he, he goes full circle, something that we started to look at back in chapter 1. It, it has the same message. He keeps repeating it. So it is about a preparedness in perspectives. You know, isn't it uh, it's a whole lot different when we talk about perspectives when you yourself are in the circumstance, doesn't it? You can define it yourself. Until you're on the other end. In other words, when you yourself are a participant in it, as opposed to, well, we just talk about it, we give examples here in class, you know, oh yeah, what about this, this, and this. When you are a participant and you are in it, what it does is it, it flushes it out where you're at. In other words, put yourself... Think about the circumstances and then evaluate how you responded to that. So, were you, were you strong through it? Or does it expose a little bit of a weakness? Or, in this case, a laziness in your perspective? Well, to kind of tie through, Jesus, Jesus told a story. In one of the verses that I looked back earlier, Jesus told the story in Luke 16. We don't need to all turn there. But it was the story of the rich man that was, very, was reflective in Jesus' teaching that he was much like the money-loving Pharisees. Remember that passage in Luke 16? 
And they thought that life was described as what you see is what you get. And that's the way it's going to be in eternity. And so Jesus, he shocks his audience by telling the story that continues and says, well, actually, it's the opposite. The servant, in that case, was Lazarus, would actually spend eternity in this, uh, in other words, in paradise, in this case, in the complete enjoyment of the bliss of heaven, as opposed to the torments of hell. But the perspective itself was what we see is sort of what we get. And this is the culture we live in. It's what we see in the circumstance. That's what we get. I learned to respond to that. Spiritually, it's not the case. And so we need to have this reminder that's there. And I think it's our culture, and Mark has hit it at it from a broader perspective, and, and I'm seeing it at the, at the core of our own, uh, the chink in your own armor, in our own hearts, that it's taking a very unhealthy turn. It's taking, um, it's, it's almost embracing um, like a, pre, a perspective that literally predisposes our collapse under any type of suffering or adversity in, in anything. I, I, it astounded me is that I had to, to address a personnel issue on Friday that was someone did something wrong. And so I had to address it. And the person said, well, it wasn't my fault. It was this person's fault that did it. I'm going, I says, you know, how, how can you even see it that way? But yet, they're the victim. And they quickly pushed it. And what I'm, I thought to myself, going, thank you, Lord, because that is exactly what's happening in this world. The culture is it's, it's building on this. You're, you're the victim, should be, I should feel sorry for you. I should make an exception in this in itself. So we no longer should be responsible for our attitudes and our actions itself. That's the culture. So not quite the opposite. I like, I like what Cheryl said. That's the direction. That's clearly what scriptures are very clear in telling us. And I, I think Peter is saying that's really the clarity of his message. We've been talking about suffering for a long time. But I'm going to submit is that we walk out of here and we, we fail at the next circumstance. Because what it, it exposes is the self in the framework of our, of our spiritual perspective. Am I wrong? Am I right? Our thoughts are just saying, it's just you, Dave. You're all messed up. <laughs> I think we have to recognize, too, that suffering is great, but... The quiet times help us to recognize and more readily accept the rope that is there. The one who is prepared to help us. That's where those times help us in the time of suffering. Because we have already recognized that there is help available. Yeah, I like that because sometimes what we're we're doing is I'm like, okay, well, boy, I got a, I got a big thing I got to pray for here, you know, because I'm gonna, I'm gonna make sure I'm tight when I get this punch. I'm ready for it, so I'm gonna be praying specifically for that. That's not what I'm hearing you say. It's basically, it is a really a broader thing of that. It's it is what is that quality? What is that represented? Christ exemplified all of that for us. 
we didn't always stop to pause to really reflect on that. And that's why that passage in John hit home with me is that this relationship that precedes everything after that. And that can only, that can only, in our case, is something of the Spirit's work in our life cultivated through time in the Word, time in prayer that is very focused and intentional. And what I love about this passage that we're going to look at because it's going to get at this purging, this refining aspect of it. It's going to put us on a fire. When he talks about this fiery ordeal in this passage, you know, we have this phrase, we say, you know, he's under, under fire. Well, you know what that means then, don't you? It's under pressure. He's under a challenging circumstance or whatever it is. I believe Peter is saying, I recognize that you guys are under the fire. Literally, it might have been the case too <laughs> with Nero around and some of his activity with Rome itself and the destruction of Rome, the timing. It's kind of hard to discern exactly what was there some physical, obvious, tangible types of evidence of that in itself. So, <laughs> that is a quick little intro. <laughs> Where are we going? Where, we've, where we're at in our study here is that we're bringing it, bringing it home. We're bringing it back to, again, this remembrance of our living hope and this return of, of the Savior in verses 4, 7 through 5, 11, and then closing as we look at it. But it takes us all the way back to this initial framework of these, the anchor in our own lives, which is our salvation and this remembrance of that then this living out of that in our testimony in itself and then literally navigating daily through the circumstances in your life. And I keep using this word circumstances because if I just kept saying suffering, you could, in your mind, you go, well, I'm not suffering. Today's a pretty good day. But I'm going to tell you it's the circumstances, it's the little things that uh, we're going to see. Is there really joy, true rejoicing that is found in those circumstances? So, please. So, um, as we go through this this session, uh, these sessions ahead over the next few weeks, it, again, it's focusing for God's glory will be our primary theme. But our objective is what does God want us to learn to it, and then it's this to be challenged, to be challenged, to find this joy in the suffering, and then here is this doing of good that gets the outflow of it is. They're suffering for the right reasons. Are we suffering for the right reasons? And so this is really our key objective from that. So let's take a look at the passage. You want to open your Bibles, or if you can want to just look at the passage, I've written it out here for us. Kind of look at our how we've broken down this passage. Is that it, it's interesting? Is that when you look at the um, the beginning of the verse, if you open your Bibles to First, first Peter four, verse. We're looking at verses 12 through 19. Um, if someone wants to either read it from up here or from your own Bible, if someone would be glad, appreciate it if you could read through the passage to kind of just give us for initial overview of what we have. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you that comes upon you for your testing, though some strange thing were happening to you. But to, do, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. You are reviled for the name of Christ, 
you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or a doer, or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name let him glorify God. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. If it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? It is with difficulty that the righteous is saved. What will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, let those who also who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faith creator in doing what is right. Thanks, Cheryl. What, uh, I'm going to break the passage down into three primary sections that we will go through. So hopeful that we'll get through these over the next few weeks. But I wanted to uh, break into verses 12 and 13 first, and then 14 through 16, and then final, relating with some judgment issues. But what's interesting to me, when you look at the beginning of this verse, that in verse 12, it addresses the beloved. Okay? And so I think that's important for us to just pause for a second because I drew an arrow in this beloved because as I look at the, this passage is that it, like Peter is sort of like hearkening us back to chapter 2 verse 11 because that's where you see again, just to, if you just look there, chapter 2 verse 11, it starts off the same way, right? As beloved. And so while he is introducing this new section to us, he begins with this beloved and what I always like to look at within a structure of his letter overall, and as you know, I like to keep going back and looking at the whole letter itself, is that as I look at the interlocking of this passage that, we, that was read in verses 12 to 19, and if I interlock that with the preceding passages, they kind of give us this view to the future, which is interesting is that verses 12 through 19 that we have here, and the very fact that he started with beloved, it's like he is one more time, just one more time, he's going to just take us back to this theme and this messaging of verses, chapter 2, verse 11 through 4 6. And then when we went through, if you just pause and went back and looked through all of those, you can see that it was all of the conduct types of thing, verses. It's what you were doing. If you went back to chapter 2, verse 11, it began a whole series of teaching where, beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from. And it was these, what do you need? It's the doing. Verse uh, 12, it says that your good works, here's this first reference to good works that we talked about. In chapter 3, verse 15, he again uh, says that, uh, not chapter 3, verse 15, it's spoken here, where he talks again specifically about this doing good. For it is better, verse 17, for it is better if, if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So you have all of this, this here. So it's like an interlocking that I see here, but it's like this hearkening that goes back one more time, which was kind of interesting. And so what in itself, as we, this passage is going to be like one more reminder. And I love this, beloved, and we'll get to it in more detail of it. But it's sort of like my mom, when my, she's trying to teach me a lesson, you know, and I wasn't always listening. And she would give me a really a long lecture like this, and then she'd come back and say, David, David, 
and repeats it again. Put your name there. That's, that's what Peter meant by this. Guys, 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 just one more time. Let me just go through this proper perspective of how we can best approach suffering. This beloved is this dear ones. And it is this really a significant term that I think he's like he's just appealing to them one more time. In the sections, as we look at the passage, there's four primary things that we're going to look at. In the first, this aspect of it, where he says, Beloved, do not be surprised. We're going to talk about as we in this this our approach during suffering is that are you expecting suffering? The question. Are you expecting suffering? Pause. When you pause every once in a while, it gives you an awkward feeling, doesn't it? It's sort of like, well, what's he asking for? A, a feedback? Or is he, do you want me to share what I'm expecting? You understand. Is that there is this expectation for suffering, and can, are you ready for the suffering itself? The second part is, is that are you rejoicing? It's a question. Are you rejoicing in your suffering? Are you excited about it? I see grins out there because I'm not sure why, because I'm excited about the passage. But are you excited about the rejoicing? In fact, Peter's going to give us more to it. He's going to talk. He says, hey, it's not only about keep on rejoicing. He's saying rejoicing with exultation. It's a whole lot more rejoicing, challenging our perspective on rejoicing. The third thing is that we're, there is this evaluation of what is the suffering that's going in and how are you responding to that? It goes through, it's like a checklist you were reading, Cheryl, going like, oh, make sure that you're not suffering as a murderer. No, that's, I'm good on that one. Thief, oh, I'm a good on that one. Oh, evildoer, I'm a good on that one. A troublesome meddler, oh, what do you mean by that? Evaluate your suffering, our approach. And then lastly, is that this appeal and this call for this entrusting our souls. Here is this full commitment to Christ. Our faithful creator in doing what is right. Entrust yourself to God. So as the four major breakdowns of this passage as we go through it and chip away at it would be expecting suffering, rejoicing in suffering, evaluating your suffering, and entrusting yourself to God. So let's... funny thing about Well, let me, let me jump ahead, jump ahead, because um, it's a big one for me too. Look at the passage. It's a command. It's a command. He says, "Do not be surprised." So, what is the implication of that? That means that they are, isn't it? it the, 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 the audience, though his readers, they were being surprised. That's what that says. It's a command. Do not be surprised. That means that they are. They're experiencing it. And I'm going to say is that you and I are the same. We are surprised. Because what you're, it's the little ones. It's the little things that we're, I'm telling you are the ones that catch you. It is not the turning to Alec when he's running at me full force. Go ahead. I can hit that one. Bounce off of me. It's the one when I'm not looking is where it catches you off guard. I had to go there because that is a, a very strong command that we see in this. And what it's doing is, think about this. When I contrasted the culture, while I don't 
all I can read is what historians might tell me about the context of this passage, what was happening. Peter is, he's, obviously the whole chapter is about suffering. We knew that, we know that Nero was, at the time, contextually, was on a rampage of persecution of Christians. He was a psycho leader. In fact, as the emperor, he himself was, some would read, is that he would, he was into fire. He would torch stuff. And the whole aspect of the destruction of Rome, many would believe that he himself was responsible for the destruction of Rome himself in causing those fires and then placing all the blame on the Christians and thus the persecution. So, contextually, what is the surprise? Why Think about the fact that he says, why are you surprised that you're being persecuted? To them, I'm, I'm alarmed by that type of statement. It would be like very obvious. It was like if we were in a war situation right now, we would know it. And I'm saying is that if we all, as we all sit here, what is that persecution look like? Thus, my focus on the laziness of our spirituality as opposed to the strengthening itself or the, the vigor that we would have in spirituality. Seeking and knowing Christ. Absent the knowledge of knowing Christ, I'm telling you, it's, it's got to be foundational in all of our perspectives. It's that relationship. And when we do that, God's word, the Spirit just opens God's Word in such a powerful, powerful way. I, I, I like to read uh, Oswald Chambers in the morning. And you know that he only has, he only wrote one, right, just one set of devotionals, and so there's like one per day. It's not like there's a new one coming out from him. He's been passed. And I've read him for years. Every single day I get punched in the stomach by him because it opens it's the perspectives of letting God show you some of the, the chinks in our perceived armor that we may have. Take it back to day one. What would have happened if Christ had come down had gone out into the desert and was crucified. Nothing happened between to bring the lesson on to anybody else. Hmm. What would the effect have been? But it wasn't. It interplayed with a lot of people. Those people, mainly the twelve, Peter was one of them, is now passing along that lesson. Expect the suffering. Rejoice in the suffering. Now the ones that he passed along to, we have a responsibility to pass it along to. Expect suffering, an education in this is the rope, this is the person, the God that can take us out of that suffering. Have a responsibility. I would say so tightly worked than what we our suffering doesn't always end. Oh, and before there's, you know, but he's a leader. When I focus on his, how trustworthy he is, but he's a hundred percent good. How I define good, that's like right on, Ian. I mean, amen to that. Well, I'm just going to kind of go through this um, in, in your handouts. There, we kind of finally reached the first point of a filling place, but uh, that's okay. I told Mark I wasn't going to. I just just keep do, typing, doing the same things. Just keep adding them to them. So we'll go through here. But uh, Peter's premise, uh, obviously, is when you go back to chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, 2 to 11, it's actually like 15 times 
I think throughout these first two chapters of First Peter, he's focused on suffering and this constant theme that you will suffer. Believers will suffer. And I wanted to take us back, if we could, because it, there's an interesting connection that we see here where at the end, like I said, this, this is like this one last reminder, is that in chapter 5, verse 10, it like connects with chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, with the same messaging itself. So if you go back to chapter 1, when we had some of the things that Mark and I have uh, shared, and just you, you have shared as well, that we looked at this whole, these elements themselves of this sovereign joy of our salvation itself as really being this anchor of our lives. And that God is sovereign both in our salvation as the foundational passages in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And also within that is sovereign in our salvation, but also within every aspect of our lives, this, the relationships, the suffering itself, the circumstances that we've talked about, and that no suffering occurs without purpose. Again, no suffering occurs without purpose. And that God is aware of every aspect of our sorrows and every affliction that comes from Him. And just some passages that um, really support that. And so as we look at that, there's just no senseless suffering for any believer. And that God does cause all those things, everything in our own lives, for His greatest purposes in our own lives. Is that what you were saying, Ann? We, we don't know it. We, we, we can't get around it. The self-realization part of me wants to figure that out. And we get there, and with Christ is, what I'm re- seeing in His own life and, and what we're seeing in Scripture, he's, God's saying, know me. Just, just know me, and you'll start to see the things that I'm doing. And so suffering exists in that first chapter 1, verse 6, is that in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold, that perishes through it, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our earthly suffering is temporary. Exactly what Ann just shared with us. Clearly, that emphasis there, it's, it's just why we're here on this earth itself. And it will not stop. You're right. It will not stop while our heavenly glory is eternal. That is the messaging that Peter's getting us. He's constantly focusing on this future glory, this future hope itself, because they're not focused on that so much. They're having a tough time seeing that. Oh yeah, here. In fact, when he says that in this rejoice, I, you know, I ask myself the question: Well, what is he asking me to rejoice in? It's the entire context of what he just said in the preceding verses, verses three to five, which were in verse three that itself, as we look at it, our what, our salvation itself that it was prompted by God's mercy in itself. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again. God does this. He's the one that causes us to be born again. That's what regeneration is called. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that has the, the power that overshadows all darkness and the sinfulness and that results in our faith and in salvation. 
Mark's point. It gives us the hope in verse 3 there. To a living hope to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That hope itself is just wrapped in inheritance. The inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, unfading, that is kept in heaven for you. And that inheritance is preserved. It's guaranteed. It's protected by God's power in verse 5. Being guarded by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And your guard, it's been guarded through the present faith for final glorification or final. Again, and to your point, it is preserved. And so that in this situation that our faith itself is developed, it is cultivated so that we would receive this final glorification. And then we will not have any. I love it's it's what? Revelation twenty one four. What? Everything is there's no more sorrow. There's no more tears. Something else that we see in the sovereign joy of salvation is the evidence. And as you look at your faith and you look at this evidence of a what does a preserving faith look like, it chapter 1 verse 6, it results in joy. It does result in joyousness and rejoicing. It stands the test of trials. It says in here that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It stands the test of trials. So this is the encouragement that we have is that, I'm going to tell you, Can you have the proper approach to suffering? Yes! Because of the genuineness of your faith in Christ and is preserved by God. The love of God. The preserving faith that loves the Lord whom we have not seen in verse 8. It says, "...whom having not seen you love." Though now you do not see Him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. So... Believing in the Lord. Loving the Lord. And it means the completion in verse 9, receiving the end of your faith, the completion of our salvation when we are with the Lord. And this is this why we can rejoice in our suffering. It is because we have a persevering faith itself in God. And so when you... When you went back to chapter 2, verse 21, it's, Peter writes specifically that you've been called for this very purpose, and what that is is that you've been called to suffer. So I want to pause there. It's about 10, uh, 13, 10, 15. I want to stop here uh, just to have a good break point as we pick up. Because we, as we pick this up in verse 12, it, it's going to get right into this aspect of this suffering that is inevitable, the surprise, the price that we see of discipleship, and that is, again, what we can expect, and that this expectation. So as a, this framework in here is that I wanted to tie it back up, because as you look ahead to chapter 5 when we get there, in verse 10, it says it again, that you may, it says, but may the God of all grace who called us to His eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, and strengthen, and settle you. He begins and he ends his letter the same way with this focus on this anchor and our salvation, but also the completion of it, and that in the middle is suffering for a little while. Okay? My, my hope today and my objective was to, again, emphasize 
uh, and challenge us in our perspectives. And so I think at this break point here, um, take some time to go, look, go back to some of those verses, and I'll redo those, those handouts if you want to bring those fine, but I'll just keep the handouts building on my next section of passages we go through and, and go through. Any thoughts, comments, uh, contributions, or things anybody wants to share tied to today's discussion? I've been months now. It's interesting back toward the end of all later here, the same stuff, and it's, uh, a lot of life happens <laughs> in the interim. And uh, I found it interesting to I'm just reflecting back. Fred, when Art uh, of Gethsemane, the work is all of press, we know that you up blood. But I found interesting. <clears throat> You'll see in the scripture it says they sang a hymn where they went to the saying of Psalm 118, and we sing it. The, the, there's a verse in there that says this. This is the day that the Lord has made. We'll rejoice and save her. Seeing that on his way hmm. would be on the cross. It, it, uh, where my head goes is that I'm one of those disciples, and I don't see that. You know what I'm saying? Is, is that... What did we? What did they miss? They missed that. Praise God for His Spirit that allows us to worship Him as we look to that. That is so powerful of a statement and perspective, because that's that's the God. That's what strengthens our perspectives, and it strengthens our spirituality. Is what we're in contrast to the weakness of it, because it's it's everything that we see there, because you know it. You know it in that relationship that we have with the Savior, and I, I, I think of that moment that we're just those disciples walking in life daily, and don't we're missing it, and that's why over the past few months, that's where God has showed me is that in life, He is in all of these things. So. Uh, you know, and when the crowd showed up to arrest him, that was the blow, mm, right? Mm, yeah. They didn't see that coming. Right? Yeah. That was that. Oh. I always, uh, I'm always, it means something different to me now. Back then, I didn't, I always kind of missed it. But when we were building the church, um, the men of the church, we had a general contractor that was helping coordinate the workers and all the guys coming, and we didn't have any skills at all for the <laughs> most part. But he would exhort everyone to come. He'd say, well, if you don't come, you're going to miss the blessing. And I never got it. For like That was his way to, well, to go and do the work itself. It was the true spiritual work in that itself. Was, that was such a, it was always a great blessing. But we, if you didn't come, you missed it. And I think that's a great lesson, a reminder for us all. So, Mark, can I ask you to close us in prayer? Thank you. Father, we begin another opportunity and bird, um, all these colliding nations um, and remind Father, we just can't help mm. let us. Father, I enter into this worship you. Uh, Father, that you, our lives, fiery ordeal, hearts be ready, cause us to men and women. Amen.